Welcome to SHN, the podcast. You are listening to a podcast that is produced by the Security History Network in collaboration with Utrecht University. In this series, SHM members will interview security analysts, historians and social scientists from around the world about themes of historical security from the 19th century and beyond. In this first episode, SHN core member Ozan Ozatsui kicks off by interviewing Virginia Axon, Professor Emeritus and Faculty Member of History at the Canadian McMaster University in Hamilton. The interview concerns their shared expertise, the history of the Ottoman Empire through the lens of security, war and peace and international relations. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, in this new podcast episode of the Security History Network, my guest is Virginia Aksan. Today, Virginia and I will talk about her long career, military history and Euro-Ottoman relations in the 19th century. Virginia, thank you very much for accepting our invitation. My first question to you is about your own story. Could you tell us how you decided to study Ottoman military history? I don't think it was a conscious decision. Uh, I believe I was drawn into it after my first book appeared, which was the the biography of Ahmed Resmi Effendi, uh, published in the 90s. Uh, about a diplomat who went to the court of Frederick the, Ge- the Great. And <clears throat> I became very curious about, um, well, I've always been curious why, why people, what people think of one another and how they behave. And that's always been something that drives most of what I do. And I was trying to get at uh, what, what, diplomats from the Ottoman Empire were seeing in Europe and what they were understanding. And then what I tripped into was the fact that Ahmed Resmi was a very severe critic of the Ottoman army, of the Janissaries. And even though there were at the time supposedly classical uh, renditions of what the Ottoman military looked like, Stanford Shaw, for example, and the others, um, Bernard Lewis even, um, there was... (laughs) absolutely no detail on how the army ran. So I said to myself, there must be something in the archives. <laughs> and I went to the archives. Well, you know, 10 years later, uh, <laughs> I dragged myself out of the archives, having discovered how much there actually is on the Janissaries and all of the related institutions. And that really is what got me started. But then I was drawn to the Russo-Turkish War, the 1768 to 74 war, because that scene is such a tremendous moment of, of change. And of course, Ahmed Resmi was one of the signatures, signatories of that treaty. So, you know, all of that sort of came together. I moved from diplomacy to warfare. Um, I could have been writing international relations, but I wasn't. I'm, I'm very always very interested in the humans and the detail, and uh, that's taken me far deeper into what was actually going on on the battlefield. Uh, just another question about the state of the archives when you started working on military history. What was it like compared to how the archives are uh, now? Well, now, of course, they're online, in theory, and you can actually search them online. Um, I was first in the archives in the late 80s, 
and um, sometimes there will be only be uh, Ilber or Tyler and me working in that old uh, small before the new building was built, uh, working at, at the desks and taking cigarette breaks and then going back to work. It was all very um, casual, although you were restricted to 15 documents a day or something like that. So very arduous process. And of course I had no computer, I had no typewriter, I had nothing. I was having to cut, hand replicate the Ottoman texts or, we slowly, slowly got into getting copies and so forth. But at that time, the archives were fairly disordered. It was, it was not, there wasn't enough staff. There wasn't enough staff ready to deal with um, documents and, and the way they were ordered. But subsequently, I learned that <clears throat> like all the other archives of the world, the habits of the archivists themselves imprint on the way in which over time these things are organized. And one has to really get into the rhythm and the way a particular archive works in order to benefit from it. So it was a long process, it was a lonely one. The last time I was in the archive was before they moved up into the uh, Golden Horn. Um, I haven't been back since, I don't want to go back since, because that last time there were probably a hundred in the room and <laughs> it become an industry, a wholly, uh, slightly different um, process, you know, intellectual process than I was used to. Yeah, that sounds like we've gone a really long way. What do you think has been studied well, especially in the Ottoman context, and what more needs to be done? Well, Chef Kit Palmuk would tell you that the economy is totally un- understudied. That uh, So the economy of warfare needs, needs a, a heavy heavy dose of, of um, engagement, uh, intellectual engagement. And Ali Yajirolo has been working on that to some extent for our period, for the 1790s uh, into Mahmoud II's time. Um, so the economy of warfare, although I use that term and I talk about it and I talk about the way that the villages could benefit from having the passage of the army, um, you know, I, I didn't have enough detail uh, at that point and I didn't have the terms to use. But in terms of straight, you know, it's hard to say that there's anything that's been done effectively (laughs) on military organization. Um, The the, great deal about land ownerships, about Vox, about, um, of course, we have Victor Ostapchuk, who's worked so heavily on the um, the Sipahis uh, and, and the ways in which those were organized. But overall, the, the way in which the governance of the army uh, went, uh, was constructed, um, it still escapes us in some, in some ways. You know, it, it, it seems rather amorphous. They're very strict kinds of abatement. You have the Janissaries who've been given all the attention but really they're gone. They're pretty much finished by 1774. So, you know, this, this cross period has been a, a, a under, vastly understudying and it's now getting a lot of attention, but I still don't think it is from the military point of view. I mean, Mesut Uyar, as you know, has written a great book, a, a big book on the Ottoman military history. And, and 
in it, the 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 whole question of the pre eighteen hundred uh, army is is repeat. It just repeats what already exists, rather than try to think of new ways of working with it. So, have we come very far? I'm not sure. In the greater context, military history has moved to cultural history. It's left the study of battles, the study of wars in the sort of traditional sense as written by the generals and those who win uh, to the study of those who lose. And those who, those who lose the most are those who are fighting for it, you know, fighting in the, in the wars. So I would say that we have uh, the, the whole history of the 20th century that devoted its time to genocide and Holocaust and et cetera, has, has shifted the way in which we also look at warfare. It's about war and society now. It's about war and culture. And um, I do think the younger historians are taking it up, even in the Ottoman context that way. Mm-hmm. You are speaking of wars, and I just want to um, bring our conversation to the context of one of the major wars that overlap with the periods you've worked on, which mm-hmm. is the Napoleonic Wars. In the literature of the Napoleonic Wars, the Ottoman agency is usually much overlooked. And this has been the case, especially until your work. How would you describe the Ottoman experience with the political and diplomatic situation in Europe from the early 1790s up to the mid-1810s? I I think... um, I think some people are, I, I, I've been a, a bit, uh, um, what's the word I want? I've been a bit um, naughty and calling it a revolution, calling Selim III and Mahmoud II a revolutionary period in the Ottoman context and insisting on it <laughs> uh, because most will not address it that way. But in, in order for it to be drawn into European history, it, we, we do have to question the way in which it's been portrayed. I mean, when I was writing the first uh, um, Ottoman Wars book, the first version of the one that's just come out, um, Hamish uh, Scott, was we would have conversations about, he said, he finally said, I understood what Selim III was up to because I had had actually written uh, written about it in a different way, with a different approach. And with the help of all of the the new military history that was emerging in Europe at the time about war and society, about actually the way it worked on the ground. So um, Selim III's period, he, nobody in Europe understood why he stuck to France. And yet clearly, clearly uh, there was some logic in what he was doing. But uh, what we also don't understand is the streets of Istanbul, the Janissaries were almost non-existent by that time. And the streets of Istanbul were just enmeshed in this terrible revolutionary fervor that was going on over Europe, actually more in Istanbul than elsewhere because there were so many Europeans there running around in cockade, you know, their little uh, French revolutionary cockades. They were allowed to to express themselves on the streets, maybe because there was no way to stop it. But um, so the, the period is convulsive. And it's convulsive all over the empire. And if you start analyzing the way constitutionalism and republicanism 
is moving into the intellectual circles in, in, in Turkey, you can see it is a very, very revolutionary period. But then Mahmud II is the age of terror because he has to try to close it down in order to create a new army that looks like a Napoleonic army. He has to close down the debate and start the idea of conscription, which is totally alien to the, uh, to the Ottoman context, apart from the Janissaries, who have long since dissipated into society. I'll stop there so I don't go on too long about this. <laughs> we'll be happy to hear more. But, uh, I, but, but what about the Ottoman positionality with respect to the Napoleonic Wars? Would you be able to say a few words about that? Positionality, you mean in terms of its geography and where it stands? Is, in terms as, of its diplomatic stance. Ah, well, that's what I, I started by saying. The same that the third sticks to sticks to Napoleon. He sticks with the French when the British and everyone else are trying to persuade him to to um, turn against France. You now France has got the biggest investment in in the Ottoman Empire. The whole 18th century sees sees France. Um, deeply in, in, entrenched in the economy. But by the time you get to Mahmoud II, you've got a different story. Mahmoud II is having to play the international great power game because, because um, he, 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 he's kind of against the wall about finding money and troops and people are going to help him. And so the Brits use that advantage, use that advantage to, to replace the French in many, many ways in the, in the, um, in, certainly in the commercial world, uh, and, and as well as by helping out with the, the navy in the east when when Napoleon attacks uh, Egypt. So I'm not sure I've answered the question, but it's it, yeah, it's maybe maybe I'll, yeah, it's a very difficult question. Maybe it's not very fair. Let me rephrase my question. I mean, in your most recent books, you use the phrase "an empire besieged." in both versions. And Alexander Mikaberitze, in his excellent study of Napoleonic Wars, he uses that phrase, the title, where he discusses the Ottoman Empire. Could you tell us how, in your view, the Ottoman Empire became an empire besieged? And did it happen during the Napoleonic Wars? Or did it begin with the Napoleonic Wars? I think it begins after 1700. I mean, by 1750, they... they 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 win these the chimeric you know the the, the treaty they, they sign with France in seventeen forty and then and then there's this there I I really think the collapse of the Janissaries is is as a fighting force uh, is 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 there after seventeen hundred this is why we can't periodize it very well because no one's been able to say aha that's the moment so we use seventeen seventy four and that treaty which suddenly raises the question of the millets and the Christians and the, and the way they're going to be treated. But, you know, the collapse has been happening before that. So um, the besieged, I mean, they fight until they have, what, six, eight wars with the Russians in the end? It, that Danube has become the, the source of all of their troubles. I mean, the, the sort of the Danube flow... Back to Vienna and in the way in which they were getting supplies coming down the Danube, it's all under threat with the Russian, with the Russian presence and 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 the Crimea and the loss of the Crimea. All those things are signals to me that they're under besieged. 
And what they've done along the way is to ignore the South, not to ignore it, but leave it to its own devices. And this allows the British to creep in. So basically, by the time we're to Crimea, the Ottomans are more or less surrounded by hostile forces. That's a besieged empire, as far as I'm concerned. That's that's uh, very clear. If we go a decade, decade later from the Napoleonic Wars to 1820s, we see the Ottoman Empire facing what the Ottomans would possibly consider as a catastrophe in 1827 in Navarino, when Ottoman Egyptian fleet was destroyed by the joint forces of Britain, Russia, and France. And this resulted from the Ottoman response to the Greek rebellion, as the Ottomans considered it at the time. Why, in your view, did the Ottoman ruling elite, the sublime board, fail to suppress this rebellion in the 1820s? For much of the, the reasons we were previously talking about, they had, they had they had no new army. They were relying on um, tribal forces. What, what you know? What we have we have talked about before about um, communal uh, mercenary forces. Whether you call them pastoralists, whether you call them uh, nomads, whether you call them horsemen, what you know, they've begun to rely on local troops to take care of rebellions, local rebellions, and this relationship is changing the nature of Ottoman government. They don't send out vast uh, 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 Janissary trains with all of the food supplies. It was a government under, with the Janissary's height, it was a government on, uh, on the road. They took all the officials as well. They had huge chests of gold coins and and would be wandering wandering the territories the routes the major military routes to the battlefields and that was benefiting everybody but that central organization has collapsed has really collapsed and Mahmoud II is struck by problems like that no one's really looked at very closely the cost of horses Finding horses for new cavalry troops was an immense problem for Mahmoud II. And he's trying to convince everybody to do the conscription, and very few people are signing on for conscription, right? So it, it's um, signing on very few people who need to impose conscription on their territories in the, in the, in the uh, rural territories are having great difficulty attracting troops. I mean, this is a... This is uh, a population that has lived without having to fight wars, except the kinds of wars that we understand from the 19th century, those that are mobilized around protection of protectionism, protections of villages, protection of, of sheep, whatever it happens to be. I think this is... Uh, so, in other words, what are state-driven wars become locally run um, small wars. And I think that is what the transition under Mahmoud II is. He's also determined to eliminate all his rivals in the provinces. He takes out a whole generation of governors, 
basically, and replaces them with their more pliable sons or with another family. And that process is terribly disruptive to the economy of the Muslims, right? So it is, you know, those two things are at work. Yes, but from a military point of view, I'm inclined to think that, especially by the time we reach 1826, 27 even, even after the Janissary units were abolished, mainly thanks to the involvement of Mehmet Ali and Ibrahim Pasha right. in the right. suppression of what the Ottomans considered to be the rebellion or the Greek independence war, if you like, there was a considerable degree of success, mm. however violent uh, it might have been. So could you say that there was more to it? Could we also, I'm counterfactually speaking at least, if the powers didn't intervene, would the rebellion or the independence war still end as it ended, meaning with the independence of Greece? That That is certainly counterfactual. Um, you know, because most now use 1827 as the... the um, the beginning of the colonial intervention of the of the powers, and that, that just the very beginning. Um, Mehmet Ali had troops, and he had he was as you say they, they were quite successful in many ways in um, stopping the rebellions. But you know, it's the Serbs and the Albanians that are going to cause such trouble. The northern Albanians. I don't call. I don't mean the Albanians have been part of the government since the, you know, fifteen hundreds, sixteen hundreds. That uh, it is the tribal peoples that are causing trouble, and that it's it's also the beginning of the exile of all, all the of the um, Caucasus folks. So you have a rival of, again, people who are not used to the kind of governance that had been established uh, under uh, the. Ottoman rule in its high at, at its high point. So, do I think that yes, they probably could have, um, of a sort, they could have put down the Greek rebellion. I think. Well, yeah, this is a this is a counterfactual question, and um, it's thank you very much. Well, it makes it it makes it, it wonder about we're now celebrating the two hundredth anniversary of the of the Greek. Greek rebellion, you know, the revolution of Greece, which it never actually really had, right? I mean, it was an imposed government, um, and it's Fred Anscombe talks about them running the places, carpetbaggers, you know, <laughs> bringing, importing kings, that that kind of thing. It's it's so, um, I I daren't say that too too uh, loudly in public, but you know, it's it, it, the notion of nation states that begin with Greece are all sort of also counterfactual, leading us to the problem with Putin declaring himself um, today or yesterday, I don't know if you noticed, as Peter the Great, you know? I mean, he did it for me. I, I've been saying this right along. We're looking at the 18th century revisited. Yeah, yeah. And it was an eye-opener for the Ottoman elites as well, the 1827 catastrophe and then the ensuing Russo-Ottoman war in 1828-29, from that point on, it became one of the ultimate objectives of the Ottoman Empire to become a member of the Concert of Europe to secure the territorial integrity of the empire. And 
also name themselves among the self-defined great powers of Europe. In your view, was the Ottoman Empire a great power? And do you think the 1856 Treaty of Paris meant that Istanbul was recognized as a European power? You know, I heard Timothy Snyder yesterday speaking about Ukraine. It, it was uh, it, it was recorded. It's quite a brilliant little conversation that went on uh, about that. And he said that the extent to which Europe has maintained Russia as a notion, colonial powers just had ways of doing this, maintaining a falsified view of the actual history that maintaining Russia continues to be a problem in, in this, finding a solution to the way we're going to deal with Russia if we ever get beyond the Ukraine-Russian mess. Well, you can think that about the great powers and Turkey. It was never called anything but Turkey. It was the Ottoman Empire. It, the Sultan never thought of himself as a Turk. And yet, the UK never called it anything but Turkey. So they were already imagining and creating their notion of a colonial state in 1820s and 1827. So I don't think, I think those skeptics among the Ottoman intellectuals saw 1856 as just another, sta another stage of, of not integration, but um, um, decline and, and um, dissolution of the um, Ottoman Empire had the right of it. I don't actually think Europe ever took them as a great power, understood them in that context. If I understand great powers, it does mean requires the way we study great powers, which is to, to wander into historiography. It does mean that we have to have data sets and understanding of whether they had the military cap capacity or could do it or not. What we do know is when they were on the ground in small wars, they were capable of reestablishing order. That is the Ottomans I'm talking about. And maintaining that border with the Habsburgs. That was pretty settled after 1750 until the, the Crimea came along, of course. The eastern border, the Iranian border, they had made agreements with Iran. And that kind of stood the test of time until the Brits come up in, and make their own agreements with Persia. And then, of course, the whole Russian Caucasus, everybody gets involved in, in the Caucasus. So um, it's apples and oranges. Uh, did they think of themselves as an empire? No, they were the, they were the, the Mamaliki Mahrusa, right? Is it the... Well, in native language, yes, but in international correspondence, diplomatic correspondence, they did call, call themselves an empire. They did call themselves an empire. Again, it can, I don't mean to confuse historiography and history. The, the way in which we construct the notion about, um, about the Ottomans, um, they certainly wanted to be part of Europe. I do think that the, the intellectuals, that is, those who were brought up in the, in the Translation Bureau, who were educated in the French Enlightenment and who thought, yes, we should be part of Europe, but they did not represent much of the population. Mm -hmm. And do you think there was a continuous antagonism between European and Ottoman agents 
in the course of the, diplomatically speaking, of course, in the course of the long 19th century. Oh, yes. Yeah, I do think that's the case. I think they would, um, if they were invited to any of, a lot of the agreements were made without any Ottoman, <laughs> any Ottoman officials present. And if they were present, as um, Mustafa Manawi has talked about, they're relegated to the back of the room, you know, they're painted with their fezes on them, you know, they're just decorating, decorating what's going on. Um, the interesting thing that I think most, most who don't know much about the Ottoman Empire don't understand is all of that uh, negotiating was going on with um, our, largely Armenians. But Jews and Orthodox Christians were also representing the Ottomans abroad, you know, and it, it's, it's a very cosmopolitan, we don't use the word anymore, much more cosmopolitan society than Europe was able to project at that time. So, uh, you know, I, I, um, it's, it's a difficult thing for people um, to comprehend that, that they, they might have had a, a refined sense of themselves based on their understanding of the international legal system and repeatedly being told they were Turks. Before I ask you my final question, maybe I should insert this interim question in between. Now that you spoke of Putin considering himself as the new Peter the Great, I mean, there, was, there is definitely use of history in Putin's discourses, though I tend to believe that it's more pragmatic, uh, more mm. instrumental. I think Erdogan has Abdul Hamid for the same purpose. Yes. If we can briefly revisit the Hamidian era. Do you think it became more clear, the antagonism became more clear in this period? Oh, yes. 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 I think because Abdul Hamid was such a secretive person, he was uh, totally paranoid. And, you know, he was fighting all the time with his ministers of war, with his, not literally fighting, but, you know, he, he had, he was engaged in this deep battle with all his bureaucrats about about resupplying the army because he assumed that if he resupplied the army they'd overthrow him which they did in the end so i mean it's you know the kind of paranoia and the fact that he insisted on running the government out of out of his own palace basically and and not not relying on on the deeply developing the quickly developing international and modern bureaucracy that served the ottomans well at the end of empire basically uh, so he became a, a, a pariah, a ball, you know, uh, Abdul Hamid the Damned or Abdul the Red because of the massacres of the uh, Armenians and the whole question of, of humanitarian intervention used him as the, the, uh, 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 as the representation of it, I think. So, yes, I, I think there's a deep decay after... If there was any goodwill after 1856, uh, it's gone by 1877, 78. And, um, and certainly Abdul Hamid then inherits that, but he also makes it worse. I mean, he's best friends with, um, with um, Wilhelm the Kaiser. And I, th- I do think there has been a tendency to mute the Prussian-Ottoman relationship by the Turks, the Turkish historians themselves. I don't particularly like that relationship talking about that relationship. But younger scholars are taking it up and saying the extent to which uh, the Prussian-Ottoman relationship 
which was not necessarily obvious in the other, uh, uh, as the other bureaucrats were dealing with France and Britain. I mean, that's all the secretive stuff going on with telephones and desks, you know, foreign officials sit and talking <laughs> across the wire and trying to rearrange the, uh, what's going on in Istanbul. You know, they're, they're scrambling. They're scrambling. I don't think they have much control over anything by the 1870s, 80s, really, in terms of international politics. Well, thank you very much, Virginia. My last question will be about the younger scholars that you were mentioning. Yeah. What advice or suggestions would you have for them, young historians of military in particular, or security in general? Right. You know, I what I see is that my generation of scholars, with people like Margaret Macmillan and, and Timothy Sidney Sid, and um, Snyder, excuse me, and um, even uh, the person we were speaking with, Brendan Sims. Um, scrambling to find a new way to talk about European history. And that has to do with, I think, a couple of things. The recognition that violence is, uh, is, um, is inherent and generic, and it's not all about peace and, you know, uh, that wars interrupt peace. It's about peace interrupting war. And I think that is, um, that is kind of um, the shift, the discussion that I heard yesterday, and I've been hearing from a lot of senior uh, people, is that we must find a new way of writing this history. So in my own book, what I did was to say, we're not talking about war anymore because all the young are not talking about war. They're talking about violence. They're talking about communal violence and the way that has an impact on development, on reforms, on um, the emergence of, of Turkey out of the Ottoman Empire. And so I do think that the the young and many of whom are second and third generation of people who have survived uh, First World War, Second World War, whatever it might be, uh, the large influx of Circassians, for example, into the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century, had an influence on the way, way things went. So um, it is this understanding that geography environment and communal settings are very important to understanding war. And that wasn't the way it used to be. You know, it was regimental. You talked about the wonderful marching into the city, or how, how Russia defeats Napoleon. They're still living with that myth, not a myth, but you know, the, 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 no, the, the, um, the lovely sort of mythological nation state ideas that come out of, of these regimental histories, which were standard, were standard. Until the Vietnam War, we didn't really start to see veterans and victims writing extensively about uh, the experience of warfare in North America, for example. The Holocaust and the genocide was a whole sort of research area apart that generalized it, but it's only now generalized that after we got beyond the, 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 the whole Jewish tragedy and effort to, to um, rectify some of what had happened there, now we've reached kind of this situation where everything becomes a genocide, everybody's a victim, and that we, it's very difficult to sort out how we deal with society at large around this violence question when you can't answer all the victims, all the victimhoods at once, you know. It's so, 
Um, my advice to the young, I guess, about military history is you should join with the older generation to find a new way to talk about this stuff, the new way to address human madness, humanist psychoses, and not just say, oh, it's all about the nation state. That's the problem. It's more about our inability to be generous to one another. Thank you very much, Virginia. This was really very informative. And thank you also <laughs> for your years-long enlightening work. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that concludes today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Security History Network and Utrecht University. The sound design was done by Annegreet Sylvius. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the show notes. For now, we thank you very much for listening and please join us again for the next episode of Security History Network, the podcast.